Hello, and welcome to the OA for Lent. The OA for Lent is a digital Lenten study guide and podcast that we've created based on the hit Netflix show, The OA. We're the creators and your hosts. I'm Keith Anderson. And I'm Martin Malzahn. And in this episode, we'll be talking all about the OA episode eight, entitled Invisible Self. To see the study guide and follow along and let us know what you think, visit our website, theoaforlent.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, on with the show. Well, welcome. We are finally here to the eighth and final episode of the OA. And if the OA became the OA for Lent in in episode five, in which uh, we have the resurrection of Scott, the OA becomes the OA for Easter with uh, the resurrection of... uh, the OA and her crucifixion. We begin the episode in a way in which uh, our viewers are drawn in. The OA and Homer are brought from their cells to an upstairs bedroom where they've been asked to heal the sheriff's wife, Evelyn. And they've been asked to heal her by performing the movements and a miracle happens. Evelyn is healed from her paralysis. And one of these beautiful exchanges takes place where she leans in and tells Homer and the OA that she had a near-death experience as a child, and her spirit guide told her that she would help two captive angels. Life for her would be painful, but it would be worth it. And then Evelyn give Homer and the OA the fifth movement. We move from the joy and exhilaration of this time to uh, Alfonso breaking into the OA's house. And he begins to look for clues of exactly what's happening. And he finds a brown Amazon delivery box hidden underneath her bed. He unpacks it and he sees inside of it a box full of books. The titles of the books are The Oligarchs, Angels, and that haunting image of The Odyssey by Homer. Every single story which she, the OA, has been sharing seems to be written in a book, and we are left wondering, is any of what she has said true? This is punctuated by an encounter that Alfonso has with Elias, the FBI agent, in which he says, you absorbed her pain and her trauma. We now left with a deflated sense of uh, story and mission as we go to the school, and the BBA is packing up all of her books and getting ready to move to California after having resigned from a job that she's lost, we have the rest of the misfits wandering the school, and then the action begins to happen. The dream sequence that the OA has been happening about what is next seems to happen, and a shooter comes. And as the shooter comes, the music comes to a crescendo, and the four misfits are joined by the BBA who runs to the cafeteria, and the movements begin to happen. And the madness and the violence of the world are confronted, not with another gun, but with movements and way which begin to transcend these. Of course, our last scene is with the OA having been shot and taken away in an ambulance. And Steve, perhaps the most lonesome of the misfits and most misguided, begins to run away after her and say, take me with you, take me away. The series ends, and we're left wondering exactly what has happened. 
Has she been telling the truth? Has she been telling stories? Did the movements begin to stop the gunman, or was it a cafeteria worker? Keith and I have uh, had a lot of different thoughts, uh, and we've used scripture to engage the series. And uh, there are three pieces of scripture in particular that I find helpful. I want to kick these to uh, you, Keith, to uh, to talk about. But one of the uh, scripture pieces that I wanted to introduce was the uh, way in which the Gospel of Mark has what they call two endings, the short ending and the longer ending. The short ending ends with, and the disciples ran away and said nothing to nobody, which doesn't seem like always a great way in which to uh, end the story of Jesus. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the longer version, which we know in most of our uh, Christian communities, is they were filled with awe and wonder, and they began to tell these stories to the whole world and went out and made disciples. Um Keith, as we begin to think about these interpretations, uh, particularly with the first of the known Gospels of Mark, and we begin to think about the uh, themes of the OA, uh, what stands out to you? Well, the last 12 minutes of this episode uh, were amazing, just like the last 12 minutes of episode five when Scott's resurrected. There's something must be about that 12-minute mark that uh, brings it all (laughs) home. And I love the analogy you make to the end of Mark's gospel, where you have sort of the original shorter ending and then the kind of epilogue ending. And it's funny because in our house, um, Jenny, my wife Jenny and I have two different approaches to this. She loves an epilogue. So if we watch a movie Mm -hmm. and two hours in and then there's this kind of ambiguous ending, I love that. I love the ambiguity of an ending. And she hates it because she really wants to know, you know, did they live happily ever after? And how did they live happily ever after? And the end of the OA kind of leaves you in that, you know, setting. So, you know, that moment when she reappears in this kind of room of light, right, that doesn't happen right away. There's this kind of darkness. Mm -hmm. And then like you see the logo and you think maybe that's it. And then you have this moment and she says Homer, you know, and and then the credits roll. So it leaves a lot uh, open to the interpretation. And in ambiguous endings, I think, you know, part of it is maybe, you know, you get to write some of the epilogue yourself, you know, so what happens to these mm-hmm. characters and, mm-hmm. um, you know, did everybody, you know, does she survive? Did she find them? Uh, what happens to the misfits? And so kind of let you kind of help write some of the story. Now we know uh, since they finished the first season that they've renewed it for a second season. So that gives us a little more indication that, uh, there is more to come and we are going to find out what happens on the other side of that moment when we see her the last time. Yeah, Keith, one of the ways in which uh, we've talked about engaging this series is as a larger spiritual practice as well, and conceiving of storytelling, both um, from our uh, our sacred stories and text, as well as the ways in which to see those themes play out in our life, but the ways in which we can tell our own stories and see them uh, sometimes as more holy than, it, uh, than we might uh, otherwise begin to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I was struck that this whole series began at a cocktail party at uh, Georgetown University in which, uh, you know, somebody begins telling uh, the creator, Britt, that she had a near-death experience. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, and then we're drawn from there, that experience, to, you know, an entire eight-episode and now uh, two, uh, at least a two-season series being made about uh, near-death experiences with a lot of other uh, storylines being uh, extrapolated on top of it. 
Well, one of the themes, yeah, we've talked about is this nature of story, right? And stories as um, forking paths, stories as forms of time travel, stories that can be this combination. And that's one of the questions in this episode, uh, some kind of combination of fact and fiction. Um, and even the way that we tell or retell the story, I mean, we see in the four gospels in the story of Jesus, right? Everybody tells that story a little differently yeah. and they're all trying to tell it accurately. Um, but in the telling and the retelling, these stories you know, take different forms and shapes and the points are, are different. The audiences may be different. And so, yeah, how does this story, this one story that mm -hmm. happens to take place at this cocktail party then um, generate this series, but then also story after story after story, which has been generated by the series itself, and including this one. You know, I, uh, I in our uh, online guide, one of the exercises I give for folks, because some people this comes really naturally, other people takes uh, a little bit of uh, a jump start to make it. There's a nine line uh, lyric that is used in one of the gospels in Luke, where it says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's the story of one of the criminals executed uh, next to Jesus on the cross. There, It's a hymn um, that's nine words. It's an Ignatian spirituality. And it's often peddled, I think, as this way in which to be able to um, have communion with, uh, with Jesus to help uh, find a transcendence. I wonder if part of that um, understanding has been misunderstood. My, my own take is that that criminal... Um, is not ever doing a plaintive wail, um, you know, please remember me. But it's more like somebody who's being executed for capital crimes is probably a, uh, a pretty tough guy who's lived a hard life. And what he is going to do then is he is going to begin to um, say, Jesus, remember me. Remember the way in which I lived and all the things that I have done. And remember the way in which you the way in which you have lived. Uh, and when we come out to the final ending, you're going to understand the uh, way in which you have lived is qualitatively different and better than mine. Uh, a way into that story, I often ask people to give him a name, uh, give him a height, give him a hair color, give the uh, man being executed, uh, you know, body characteristics, uh, skinny, muscular, tattooed, uh, lean, what are the, uh, what are the ways? And when these characters become human, our neighbors, our friends, you know, even the person sitting across from us, uh, on public transportation, I think that we're invited into a, an imaginative type of theological thinking that helps us build a deeper connection between movies, music, you know, even a TV series and our own lives. And we can then maybe weave ourselves uh, within the lines of our sacred texts as well. Have you found uh, techniques that have been able to help people uh, dive deeper into uh, this imaginative theological interpretation? Well, I think that's part of the danger, especially when we come to sort of the biggest times of the church here, like at Christmas Eve. I always find it's a struggle to preach because the story is so well known uh, or people think they know it so well that they take it for granted, or when we come to Easter and all those people that were Christmas and we haven't seen since come Easter morning, and the story is so well known that we don't critically engage with it. Uh, one of the projects we've been doing at our church, which is inspired by Casey Fitzgerald and her work at faithandwonder.com, is to ask families from our church to crowd 
source uh, a video that shares the Christmas Eve gospel and now this year the Easter gospel. So for instance, this year we had 12 families that I asked to take a different part of the Easter gospel from Matthew and to record themselves saying that one part and then also some other parts of it all together and then send it to me. And what I've sort of discovered in the process of doing that, it's been a real faith formation kind of activity because the families then have to, you know, look at the reading, figure out how their part of the whole reading fits into the story, how they want to communicate it and how they want to present it. Are we outside? Are we inside? Are the parents and kids going to do this or just the kids? Um, And figuring out the logistics of that. And so you're really becoming an almost an expert in this single verse, this part of the story. And then they all send me their recordings and I edit them all together. And it's like a four minute video. And, and then they wind up seeing like what everybody else did, you know, on Sunday morning, which is kind of part of the, the fun and the surprise of it. And it's just amazing to see how many different ways people interpret and communicate the story. Right, hmm. things I would have never dreamed of. They're recording, and it's so fun. There's lots of giggles in the background when people are recording. <laughs> it's so fun, and you know, am I serious? Am I fun? What is this supposed to do and supposed to say? And who are we, you know, as a family? And how do we do this together? And it does invite people into the story. And then I think when we show it on Sunday, the people that are just accustomed to hearing the story read are invited to engage with the story you know, in a more fun way, I'd have to say, but also more critically, because these different parts are being presented to them um, in in these different ways of communicating. Wow, wow. You know, I guess maybe in some ways, like, uh, this is the meta meta stuff that we're doing, right? So like, (laughs) you've got, you've got a a one layer of uh, the OA is that it's a straightforward story about uh, this horrible event and mysterious event that's happened to a person. And then it gets uh, you know, another layer is added to it that she begins to share her story with a group of people. And then they have an experience not only with the uh, original story, but with their hearing of the story. Mm-hmm. And then when they begin to act out the story right. to become part of it with the five movements, yeah. this becomes something else which other people observe and can share who are within the story. And then you have the viewer. Mm-hmm. who can do these things. Yeah. And then we're asking to pull out and become engaged these to our own faith stories. Yeah. And layered these things on our gospel text as well for Easter Sunday mm-hmm. um, in much the same way. Um, I think we both come at this and say, this is straight up faith formation. Right. right? <laughs> this, <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. this is this is how faith is formed. I, Keith, you know, we, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of colleagues um, that don't see faith formation like this. I, I have some ways in which I've come to this, but I'm kind of curious how you've come to naturally connect digital technology and movies and uh, music and, you know, this series to faith. Um, it's so startlingly obvious to us. But, you know, what were the what were the ways in which, you know, you began to see that? Yeah, well, it's I don't think it came easy for me, actually, because I was trained as you were to do faith formation in a certain way, which was gathering a bunch of people in a room and, you know, reading a book or doing a Bible study or picking a religious topic and and being the expert in the room and talking about it and trying to get people to ask questions and engage with you and each other around it. I think for a lot of people, not doing that feels like 
that's not real faith formation. You know, if mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. I and I do those things still, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do mm-hmm. I do both, mm-hmm. but I, I think there's this sense like and that comes up in digital technology and social media. Well, it's not really real, and mm-hmm. I think the aha moment for me was when I back in the day some years ago was doing this mm-hmm. YouTube series, this two minute Bible study YouTube series, where you know in two minutes I'd record myself or, or with friends and we'd work on it together, reflecting on the readings that were coming up for the coming Sunday in the lectionary. And so on Tuesdays, we'd record it, and I'd have to come up with some kind of nugget, some kind of story, some kind of into that text. We'd record it, process it, go have Chipotle, come back, post it online. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, the Chipotle was the key part in the whole process. Yes, yes. And then then we put it out there, and the response was really kind of amazing. Now, like those were earlier days in social media, so a lot of people are doing that kind of thing now. But it allowed me to see, oh, people can watch this like on their phones. They can watch it at home. We're all doing like this sermon prep together now because you're watching this yeah. on Tuesday and your wheels are turning. And by the time we get together on Sunday, we're going to be have been thinking about this for like five days and all of our thoughts will have evolved and emerged. And in the course of my you know, generating this sermon over the course of the week, you're going to be thinking about it too. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to come together in this moment. And that was probably the first aha moment to say, you know, I just started doing that really because this new laptop I had had a webcam on it. And so I could do it. (laughs) It's the worst reason in the world to do a YouTube series just because, you know, you got a new toy uh, because you can. And it took a while to kind of iron out the the kinks and, and make it more watchable. But that was probably the moment for me. And, you know, with this project, it's in it kind of an evolution, an extension of that. We're putting putting this kind of digital first, digital only faith formation thing out there for people. And they're looking at watching at their own pace, they're reading and listening at their own pace. And I continue to get stories, you know, um, like just yesterday, somebody saying, you know, I never would have watched that show if you hadn't recommended it. But wow, I didn't think I would like it, but I really loved it. And you know, and I've watched the last 12 minutes of that last episode so many times. And it's been really cool to hear how people have been engaging with that. So I'm not, we're not right defining how they're, they're engaging with it. We're offering it out there and then they're figuring that out. And we get to hear the stories that come back from that. You know, one of those stories we've gotten was a a question where uh, we had an over 60 year old person made an observation said, I like this. This is interesting to me. But when I talk to my peers, they are less engaged by this series. And the person said, you know, do you notice a difference between engagement with the over 60 crowd and under 60 crowd? Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've got a couple thoughts. I've been really thinking about that a little bit, but mm-hmm. I want to see if that's been something you've been noodling around as well. The majority of feedback I've gotten are from people that are uh, younger than that. But uh, the person I spoke to just yesterday who was so captivated by the end of the series and even uh, the end credits where you have this like slow kind of the arms of the angel, the Sarah McLaughlin song that's being sung. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, begins to sound familiar. And then you're like, Oh yeah, there's right. That, which is the perfect song to end the series, you know, or end mm-hmm. the season with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was over 60 and, and it was really intrigued by it. So mm-hmm. I would say most of the feedback I've gotten, I think part of that is a function of accessing the technology because you mm-hmm. have to have Netflix, you have to be able to stream it. 
or you yeah. have to know what a podcast is and be able to access it. So I think there is a certain technological bar that's at work also generationally. Well, yeah, I, I'm glad that you're the uh, pragmatist in this, Keith. That, uh, <laughs> you know, like I, I did a YouTube series because I could. I got a new computer. Uh, uh, younger people access this because they can. They, uh, they, have, they have Netflix accounts. I went to someplace a little bit more philosophical when I was I, – I, I thought of this experience I had with uh, – a group of uh, confirmation students, and one by one, they all came to me and said they all hated confirmation, <laughs> and they, they wanted to drop out. And they each had a slightly different reason, but their consensus was that this didn't seem real and it didn't seem relevant. Mm-hmm. And so I scrapped whatever I was doing with confirmation at the time. This is about 10 years ago. And I had um, uh, I invited a group of interfaith leaders from our town in. So I had a um, Buddhist uh, priest and I had a rabbi and I had a Catholic priest and I had a retired Protestant minister and I had myself. And we did this, oh, and I, and I had a physicist. Mm-hmm. And we, we sat around and we kind of did these interviews um, where I could have, you know, these 14-year-olds ask questions, but mostly just listen a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, now, 10 years later, what impact that made on these now 24-year-olds, but I still remember it. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, when I was asked, you know, a little bit to define my faith story, I went off script from the way in which I usually had. And I, rather than referring to my favorite Bible story or, you know, the ways in which, you know, sacred texts have been so important, I said, bar none, my favorite theologian is Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, which I suppose, I suppose I'm right there with date, you. I'm right there with it, you. It dates me in a weird way, and maybe it dates both of us because we're way too young to have been formed by Bob Dylan mm-hmm. when Dylan was Dylan. Mm-hmm. But the way in which he shared stories and um, uh, formed his song lyrics, I was unlike anything on the radio, and it was so imaginative in a way in which I began to you know, just see the blurring of what's happened and what could happen and what did happen all constellated in this moment. And anyway, that's a long way to say that I I wonder if part of what this generational difference is as well is as faith formation, that maybe an over 60 crowd uh, who are faithfully attending religious services is that it's harder to access that part of their imagination because they have been formed by this is how you talk about it. And younger people may be formed by less of a automatic default to sacred scripture as the primary or the only uh, source of wisdom, that there are a lot of other places in which, um, you know, we can learn about God and awe and mystery. Uh, is that too philosophical or do you do you resonate with some of those concepts? No, I certainly resonate with it. And yeah, to say it's it's no fault of people's own that that they gravitate to faith in that direction, because that's how faith has been taught for, you know, pretty much their whole lives. But it's one of the things that drives me crazy in the church is when we present faith formation as a set of answers. And so, you know, in 45 minutes and say, see, here you go. There it is. That's the answer. You know, and, and life doesn't work that way. And I think we we know life doesn't work that way. Um, in my book, I tell the story that was relayed to me by Paul Hoffman, who used to be at Finney Ridge Church and in Seattle. 
and he was telling the story about doing this generational Bible study. He said he liked to do Bible study with young adults in his congregation. And some of the older members of the church said, well, why, why aren't you doing Bible study with us? You know, And so he said, okay. So invited everybody to come together. I think they were doing the road to Emmaus. And he had them break up generationally into different tables. And so they had the scripture, and then each table would talk talked about it, and then said, you know, sort of what are the, the questions that you have about it? Um, and the older table said, you know, well, why didn't the disciples recognize Jesus, right? Like, this is on the disciples. And they're going mm-hmm. through, and it gets to the kind of the younger adult table, and, and their question is, why did Jesus manipulate them in that way? <laughs> you <know>? wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the classic answer that we've been trained to is like the disciples were, I mean, and geez, we, there's plenty of examples in the Gospels, the disciples were dumb, uh, and they just didn't yeah. <laughs> get it. But here's like, why did Jesus manipulate his disciples like that when, you know, in their kind of moment of grief? And he said, then after the young adults asked that question, the people at the older generational table said, well, that's the question we were wondering, but we were too afraid to ask it. You know, those wheels were turning there too, but we've been trained in the church not to ask that question. I mean, that was a good moment that crystallized a, a lot of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that that's something that I saw a little bit in this episode too, is that moment of just despair and disappointment when Alfonso, you know, finds this box of books and then he takes it to the misfits and he begins sharing this. And the, you know, Elias, uh, played by that amazing Riz Ahmed, um, you know, begins to say, you know, what you did was you simply listened to her story and you absorbed the trauma. And he tries to kind of talk about this very, you know, uh, therapeutic way in which that's helpful. But that didn't work for Alfonso at all, right? So he either wanted to know that the story was true or it was untrue. And this third positive, like, oh, maybe it was actually therapeutic, wasn't helpful to him. Yeah. Well, it wasn't helpful to me. That's not what I wanted to hear either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm immediately thinking to myself, who planted those books there? Was it the FBI guy? Was it the mom? You know, I'm looking at, I'm analyzing. I shop on Amazon all the time, right? I get those packages weekly. And so they look familiar. I'm like, those books look really new. How could those be her books? You know, <laughs> looking for ways to explain away the, the doubt. <laughs> well, Keith, I even remember that uh, you you had, planted at first thinking there's no way this could be true because she can't even use the computer right like the very first the first episode like the the bargain the strangers on a train bargain is to be able to get a router to be able to use a computer he's like there's no way she could have you know possibly ordered from amazon so it, it can't be true and i sometimes maybe the simplest explanation is the best explanation which is yeah it didn't work for me (laughs) <laughs> I was having a Twitter conversation, you know, just this past week, uh, and we were talking about, you know, a lot of people are, people, you know, would complain about the, oh, they didn't like episode eight and for whatever reasons, and so right. there's a lot of pushback on episode eight, and the kind of conversation was like, well, um, it's interesting to see when people suspend their disbelief, you know, it's like, right. really, like, if you were really wanted to suspend your disbelief in this series... You know, I mean, there were plenty of opportunities, you know, like there's when they got to the mine, that could be one. When they start the movements, that could be another. Like if you're really going to lose it, you know, six or seven uh, are probably the places like, but you you make it to eight and eight actually pulls it together 
And then that's the one you're complaining about, you know, that just kind of cracked me up. So we all have our different thresholds of, uh, you know, how far we're willing to go and how far we're willing to suspend our disbelief. What I... I think one of the things that I actually that worked for me about episode eight was that like I it, it in some ways it's a Billy Elliot moment, right? <laughs> you know, where you know, I'm just so so angry and so fed up, all I can do is dance. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, they're facing trauma, uncertainty, you know, death. You know, what can we do? Can we run away? Can we confront this person? I know, let's do the movements. And I don't know. I mean, like, I guess maybe I'm artistically sensitive like that, but that's why it worked for me, you know, because there is an alternative, you know, you know, not only does it make sense sequentially within this show, but perhaps to the violence of this world, right? You can, oh, the response is to become a protester or the response is to become a lobbyist, you know, how are you going to agitate within the system or outside the system? Or is there another way in which being, in which we can actually use, you know, a set of creativity, which is not tap into anger, nor does it tap into, you know, cynical naivete, but can actually tap into a deeper part of ourselves and, you know, the way in which I think a life of faith works, you know, can we tap into what justice and love look like outside, which may be a song, which may be a dance, which may be a poem, and I think that they actually have intrinsic power on their own. Um, not always, but, uh, but they do, right? There have been moments in the course of time and history in which these improbable things, you know, become these iconic moments and time is changed. Right. And here we are in the middle of Holy Week. So we're recording this on Good Friday. And that's, I mean, that's like Jesus is doing, it's exactly what he's doing. So in the face of the world's violence, He's responding nonviolently, and he's also enacting uh, and passing on to his followers these rituals, this foot washing and Last Supper that we celebrated last night. And in the face of empire and all the violence um, that continues to be perpetuated, you know, this just this week we had tomahawk missiles in Syria. We had what a, a twenty-one thousand pound bomb go off in, that we dropped in Afghanistan. And again, Jesus is standing in front of the empire and taking it on the cheek and taking it all the way to the cross. In a week when these world events have happened, and we're also hearing, as we will tonight on Good Friday, the trial and the passion, the crucifixion of Jesus and laid in this tomb, these are certainly stories that are very present to us. Right, the story of Jesus being confronted by Pontius Pilate, by the political authorities, by the religious authorities, by empire. And now here we are again facing those same questions. And the question to us is, how then when will we respond? Will we respond out of love? You know, and Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. You know, I preached last night in my sermon, I said, Well, I mean, what Jesus shows us is that, you know, love's just not a feeling, love is a choice. Right? Love is an act of will to wash those feet, you know, to walk that path, um, to love when we don't feel like loving. And that's the love that Jesus uh, shows us, the love, uh, the love, you know, when it costs us something and something deep. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that subversity is um, sometimes, uh, I think, 
understood as sentimental when that's not what I think Jesus has in mind. And I think that's also not what actually changes the world as a sentimentality. I was reading a story about the 2006 um, Easter egg roll at the White House. And something I didn't realize is that in 2005, um, uh, there was a woman and her wife signed up for the role, and she recognized that anyone can sign up. All you have to do is get on a waiting list and you can go to the White House. So she began in 2005 to think of, in 2006, I'm going to try to make the entire lawn filled with queer families and their children. And it was. So this was like the greatest, you know, subversive act where that it was all same gender couples and and their children on an Easter egg hunt at the White House. And to me, that begins to, you know, I'd have to noodle around a little bit more and find out if, you know, how that matches up with uh, the marriage equity. But to me, it begins to say that sometimes um, subversive and loving acts, you know, can be just as simple as being public and being in love with your spouse and being a family with your children um, on, you know, and putting on a a tie or a a brightly uh, colored uh, pastel shirt and uh, going out in public. Um, You know, that's a, it's an act of courage um, in a time of fear. Yeah. I have this mantra that's just stayed with me for uh, some months now, you know, every act of love is an act of resistance. Uh, and, uh, I've got that pinned on my Twitter stream <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it's just as true for me today as when I wrote it, uh, several months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, uh, I shared with, uh, our college community, which it's sometimes difficult to give, uh, you know, messages which are really grounded in the specificity of faith mm. to, uh, multi-religious audiences. And I invoke this uh, phrase from the saint of Staten Island, uh, Audre Lorde. She says, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength on the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. And uh, I, I use that to be able to uh, invoke for our folks who are celebrating Passover, for folks who are celebrating Holy Week, for people uh, who in the weeks before had celebrated the Hindu holiday of Holi, and uh, for uh, a growing uh, religious community uh, who are intentionally non-religious um, because they haven't been able to find themselves within uh, communities. Uh, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength and the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. I use that as a coda to understand this series as well. Um, you know, I've seen, been able to find some, uh, some courage uh, in this project for uh, facing difficulties within uh, professional and personal life. And I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, being able to find uh, some conversation with others online and certainly with you. Well, the feeling is mutual. It's been so fun to feel like fully reconnect after um, spending more time together in New England and then uh, each of us going here and there and doing different projects. And uh, and I continue to value these conversations. Uh, Gordon Kaufman uh, talks about conversation as a form of theology. And he said, uh, what we don't need now are experts and monologues. What we need is to figure out how to make our way through this life together. Uh, and that is theology. And uh, I think that's, you know, part of what we've been up to here. And, you know, for all the 
uh, time that we have posted these podcasts, you know, maybe 30 minutes a piece for each episode, you and I have talked yeah. uh, offline for <laughs> way longer than that uh, about about life, about careers, about ministry, about technology, about culture, about our families. Uh, and so um, those are the, the parts that we get to keep to ourselves, but have been maybe the biggest joy yeah, of this project yeah. for me. Well, and uh, I hope that this is something that we can uh, we can keep going, that we've uh, connected to uh, some new mm -hmm. communities, uh, including Marty's Mug. Uh, continue shout out to folks in South Dakota who <laughs> actually be, uh, began this mm -hmm. uh, this process, as well as some uh, friends who have said, hey, you know, what about uh, using this series or that series? And uh, maybe we'll see some other people mm -hmm. uh, pop up and populate uh, podcasts and uh, web guides. And uh, it's entirely possible that uh, we may do a season two on this, Keith, or uh, find a new series, too. That's right. Yeah, we uh, invite everybody to, you know, steal our stuff. Uh, you know, we think we've hit on some kind of format that works here in different ways. And we'd love for you to try this out yourself, you know, pick a series or pick a movie or a book or whatever the case may be, and feel free to use and reuse and refine this. Um, and we'd love to see, you know, what you're doing and what you're up to. And yeah, the season two is in the offing for the OA. So uh, it may be that we, we continue the OA for some other time of the church calendar year. <laughs> well, this is good news. And uh, we wish everyone a continue uh, blessed Holy Week and a, uh, a happy Easter as we uh, look forward to uh, the Pentecost and uh, perhaps uh, all other seasons of life. Even though this is the podcast for the last episode, I think you'll still be hearing from us. We might do a wrap-up. Uh, we have a conversation coming up on the podcast Killer Serials, where we'll be talking about the OA. You know, feel free to continue to use this just because it's the OA for Lent. You may not have caught up with all of this material, so maybe you're listening in Easter or season of Pentecost or whenever the case may be. These materials will be up and they'll continue to be available. So if you're watching and following along, you know, these will be here when you're ready. If you're thinking about using this for a group study next Lent, the website will be there. The podcast will be there. You could create something around the OA for next Lent uh, as well. And we'd love to hear how you're using it, whether it's now or, or later on or even next Lent. Keep those stories coming. Well, thanks so much, everybody. And uh, until later, bye-bye. Take care.